The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Heather Stewart. This week, what lessons should economists take from the world financial crisis? Since the autumn of 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the global financial system was on the brink of total meltdown, governments have been overthrown. Bankers have been forced to eat humble pie. Regulators have admitted they were asleep at the wheel. Yet economists seem to have picked themselves up, dusted themselves off and carried on as before, with just a few tweaks here and there to the mathematical models they use to understand the world. So why do economic models matter? Are these models now broken? And if so, what can replace them? With us today are two experts who think the credit crunch shows us economists need to go right back to the drawing board. From New York University's Department of Economics, Professor Roman Fridman, and from University College London, Professor David Tuckett. And alongside them, from The Guardian's Business and Economics desk, Philip Inman. Welcome to you all. Roman Fridman, in your new book, Beyond Mechanical Markets, you say it's time to jettison some currently orthodox economic models that you say are socially dangerous. Can you explain what you want to see scrapped and, and, and why? What I would like to see scrapped is the pretense that we can come up with an overarching model of the world and that our job, our mission as a profession is to go to our offices every morning and finally discover how the world works precisely. I think that is what the vast majority, I don't want to exaggerate, but perhaps nearly all macroeconomists and finance theorists do both in academia and in the industry. And all of those models rest on flawed foundations. So, yes, you are completely right that there's been a lot of intense discussion about what's wrong with economic models. And for me, the main reason why economies have emerged so well from the crisis is that there hasn't been enough questioning about the foundation of all the models, both pro-market, I stress, and anti-market. Both models that emphasize informational defects and informational asymmetries and market failures and models that are behavioral models, the most orthodox models, they all of them rest on the same foundation. That foundation is an imaginary world in which economies assume that nothing new ever happens. The amazing thing about these models is that they even survive the crisis. And after the crisis, we still build models in which nothing genuinely new ever happens, as unbelievable as this may sound. And all we do, we think now, Chairman Bernanke, for example, gave a, a speech at Princeton University, not less, in which he said that, you know, there's a little bit of a problem here with uncertainty and with this and that. But basically what we need to do is to bring in the banking sector into the macro models and we have all the tools, we're done. So because the foundations have not been questioned, it's natural that economies have emerged as well as they did because no one actually understands what they do and they're the only ones that can fix those models. And if that's all that is required is fixing the models, then of course no one else can intervene and everything is basically okay. We made a little mistake, but we'll fix it. And back in 2008, Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the US Federal Reserve, highlighted this issue as one of the contributing factors to the crash. 
A Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of the pricing model that underpins much of the advance in derivatives markets. This modern risk management paradigm held sway for decades. The whole intellectual edifice, however, collapsed in the summer of last year because the data inputted into the risk management models generally covered only the past two decades, a period of euphoria. Presumably, Roman, you would argue it's, it wasn't just because of the, the data didn't go back far enough, it was because the models themselves were broken. I would say broken. the problem with uh, this, so there are two problems with Chairman's argument, and one positive thing about Chairman's argument, Chairman Greenspan's argument, one is that he understood in another speech that he gave at the AEA meetings, which was a very important speech. That's the that American in, Economics Association. Right, yeah. that the model imperfection is the greatest risk in the financial markets, that the change in the models is much more important than the blips around the models. So take the standard risk management that Mr. Greenspan is talking about. The standard way of measuring risk is that one assumes that there's a model and there's some deviations around the model. You know, things happen, little things, random things happen. You compute the deviation from the model, that's called volatility, and that becomes your measure of risk. If you take that position, then you led to the position that he articulated in this speech, namely, the more data you have, then the better off you are, because the more accurate is your measurement of the volatility. But what he also recognizes in this speech is that certain periods of time are going to be different than others. What he does not recognize, that that's not 20 years, that those changes in modern economies occur all the time, and they gradually accumulate to departures from models. So the 20-year period for data is an extremely long period. There is no model that I know of that would last 20 years, including the ones used by the ECB or anyone else for that matter, as sophisticated as they may be. So the fundamental problem with measuring risk it's not a problem that we had a quiet period. It's the problem, first of all, we didn't have a quiet period because there were fluctuations in the economy that he presided over that were part of the problem that we got ourselves into. If in 1996, instead of pronouncing our irrational exuberance, the, the, the Federal Reserve was there to step in, I am not entirely sure we would have been where we are. So I'm not sure about this period of what he means by moderation is that everything was doing very, everyone supposedly was doing very well, but at the same time, we were moving up and up and no one was terribly worried about the risk. So then final question is, why wasn't anybody worried about the risk? It wasn't the 20 years of data and it certainly was not the quiet period. What was there was the fact that we had a model of risk that has nothing to do with the inherent instability of the economy. And once you have a model of risk that has nothing to do with the inherent instability of the economy, the moves up to 14,000 and you think it's okay. You think it's going to be there forever. And so, so that's the real issue. So the real issue is the way we measure risk, the excessive exactness and, and the data, this whole informational issue that has been recently emphasized is not unimportant, but it's basically a sideshow. The imperfect knowledge is the problem that we face. And Philip, the crisis was more than two years ago now. Um, do you think anything's changed or do you think economists are, are still in thrall to their, their models? Um, 
Well, I think, like, as, as was said just a minute ago, you know, you've got people like Bernanke saying that, uh, that all we have to do is fix it, you know, by including, you know, banking into the model. And here the Bank of England have said, oh, we've got to look at shadow banking. So we've got to look at the transactions that are going on outside of stock markets and credit markets. And, and then the regulators say, well, the answer to that is to bring them into those markets mm. and not so have... So you bolt shadow. a bit onto the so model. So you bolt a bit on. I mean, I'm interested in that, you know, the, obviously you've got a quote there from Greenspan and, you know, it almost appears like a joke. You know, when when, uh, you know, when we say things like, you know, there's been we've had 50, 60 years of peacetime, uh, except we've had about 400 wars going on during that time. (laughs) You know, it's like that sort of situation (laughs) where where obviously that when they describe the nice decade of the last 10 years, that's as far as a household is concerned. It's been relatively placid. Um, They've been in work and their wages have been going up if they've been in some countries or not in Germany or in the the United States to some extent. But uh, but obviously Bernanke and his colleagues have been fighting wars all over the place to try and maintain this situation. Mm. And for them to come out and make a speech and say, well, nothing's really been going on the last 20 years. It's been a nice decade. And hey, you know, that just goes to show how well things were working. But oh, maybe there's a few little things we need to tinker with. It just makes them into a joke. I don't understand how... They get in front of a Senate committee and nobody's laughing at them. You know, they're taking them seriously. But, I, I, you know, it's, it seems beyond a joke to me. David, your, your approach is to bring psychology to, to some of these sorts of decisions that go on in the financial markets. What do you think uh, that can bring to, to our understanding of what's, what's going on? Well, I'm keen to differentiate between the economic understanding of the market for goods and services generally and economic understanding of financial markets. I think it's economic understanding of financial markets which is seriously flawed in the way that you've all been talking about, essentially because it doesn't recognise that financial assets are different in that they engage the imagination and they engage emotions in a very powerful way and that it's extremely difficult to value them in any way that leaves those things out, in fact impossible. The result is that financial markets are markets in emotion and stories, and of course anyone who's a journalist knows this because half the headlines deal with this. This is a reality. And that uh, uh, the point is that financial assets create feelings and are created by feelings that go to the heart of the human psyche. In particular, our ideas about uh, getting excited, becoming anxious... You know, anybody investing in the stock market, for example, and I'm talking about professional investors, they do it at a certain point because they believe at that moment they have an information advantage of other, other people. Of course, they know perfectly well that might not be the case, and so they spend their time looking over their shoulder and worrying. And markets in stories will change and be much more volatile than markets in fundamentals. Even the big events of 2008 in many ways, didn't change as much about ordinary companies, etc., etc., especially if they weren't leveraged, than it did about the story. The story changed much quicker, much faster than the fundamentals. So for me, economics of financial markets needs a total change to take account of uncertainty, information ambiguity, and the way in which these engage emotions and human uh, psychology generally. Can I, ask a, can I ask a question here, Heather? Of course you can. Um, I wanted to ask you both. Um, we talk about the orthodoxy, and um, 
and you talk I look up someone like uh, Philip Lagrain who's written a very popular book Aftershock he's now been well since last year he's become the chief advisor to Mr Baruso who's obviously the head of the European Union U- European Commission so you've got a very powerful figure chief advisor believes in total free markets his whole critique is the problem is the markets aren't free enough we're not allowing free movement of labor we're not allowing you know we should have small banks because they should be competitive you know it's all about bringing pure competition back and that's the, that would solve everything because that is their belief i mean how would you kind of tackle something like that when someone is in you know advising someone in quite a senior powerful position i think the, the one of the key points here is that the origin of economics is actually in ideology the origin of economics is in the struggle between the uh, rising merchant class in england and the king and the attempt to get rid of monopolies and control, or in other words, free markets. And then, of course, its second great wave was in the United States, and they got rid of King George III. So you, you need to understand that economics has always been as much about ideology as about, so to speak, technical. But beyond that, I think that the way an economy actually does work and in which it manages to solve problems of coordination so that, you know, you arrive at an airport in New York and you find things waiting for you just because you happen to be there. It is an astonishing fact in economy, and a great deal of economics does throw great light on that, and it does have to do with all the classic propositions. However, as I've said before, that that with financial markets, I think none of that works. And there's an, basically the entire framework is flawed. And then it really has been totally ideological. And, and uh, this is something that, for example, Adair Turner has, has, I think, drawn attention to, the way in which there's a complete split uh, going on in the period leading up to 2008. Yes. I, I, I just wanted to kind of try to suggest that maybe it's less of ideology and more of theory, and here's the evidence to me. I mean, I, there's a multiple I've answers to. This was a very interesting intervention. I have answers on multiple levels here. So let's talk about the ideology first. The most interesting thing about this phenomenon has been that it all happened in the 90s, the true deregulation. It didn't happen under Reagan, it did start under Reagan and Thatcher and Prime Minister Thatcher, but did not really. It came to full fruition under the Democratic administration. Yeah. People who basically are not adverse to some dose of government intervention. Bill Clinton perhaps was less so, abolishing welfare and so on. But still, the democratic tradition is not the, exactly a free market tradition. And so how do we explain that? I think that one of the leading candidates for me, the two leading candidates for me, first one is the fall of the Soviet Union, which has been misread by people like Fukuyama and others, that we arrived at the end of history. And that end of history is a liberal free market democracy with the state playing at best and minimal role. But that still is not enough. That's, I think, within what David said would be an ideological position. Because that's just an interpretation of history, which is ideological, admittedly. So let's go further. At the same time, I want to bring to your attention the fact that the program of economics in which 
ineffectiveness of government policy, the perfection of markets in pricing goods and services, particularly in financial markets, has actually become dominant, completely dominant. All other, until the, all other approaches have been excluded. And note that also the behavioral approach that comes online in the 1990s, in a strange way, is also a support of the free market ideology because it argues the following. It says that the markets, the fluctuations, the instability that we see is due to the fact that some people in markets are irrational. They're driven by mass psychology. So what's the implication of this? The two implications. One is that if we could just get rid of them, markets would be perfect. So that's one implication. There's a, and of course, there's another implication that since we can't really get rid of them because markets have a lot more money than the Bank of England or any other bank, then we do nothing. And that basically, if you add it all together, if you add this powerful, and now take the informational imperfections, you know, the informational symmetries literature in economics, that development. Well, that also suggests that if we could just fix the informational problems, if we could just fix the competition, which is what Phil was talking about, we're going to be fine. The market will come back. So now, so, so you have a crisis, so you have this... Before the crisis, you have uh, the, what uh, uh, Justin Fox had uh, really well characterized the rational market myth. But what he mischaracterized is that after the crisis, the myth has survived very well. Because we now have theories that say that markets are completely haphazard casinos. No one really believes this. So therefore, we still don't have any proper intervention and balance between the state and the market. Mm. And because we continue- if it's a complete casino, you just have to shrug your shoulders and exactly. there's nothing you can do. Exactly. It's it. an yeah. act of God. Yeah. We just sit around and we hope for the best. And in fact, when you look at the financial reform now, it's completely permeated by this theory. Because what is this theory about? It's not about taming the instability of markets is about fortifying the defenses of the banking system so it becomes ready for the inevitable collapse. As Martin Wolf said today on a different topic is that we, the only thing we can do is to be ready. David, you wanted to come in there. <laughs> I, I do agree that, something, that a very fundamental issue concerns the development of behavioral economics and the idea that you can talk about rational and irrational. I am completely opposed to that distinction. As far as I'm concerned, nearly everyone in life generally acts rationally if you take their point of view at that moment and the information available to them. I think this is a real red herring, and indeed I think that behavioral economics, interesting as it is, has very little to offer in this area. And it's interesting if you try to explain to someone out there on the street that economists think that they can write down and fully explain the way that you or I go about making you know, any decision in our ordinary lives, people would think that was completely mad, wouldn't they? But And do you, Roman, can you explain in kind of reasonably simple terms, because you you have a a theory to, as to what we should replace these these defunct models with. Can you, can you sort of put across to us in, in simple terms what we need to do, what, what, yes, what we I, need I to build think, in its place? But, but we, we sort of, uh, we just look around the world and what do we find around the world? The most important feature around the world that we find is non-routine change, is the change that no one, including economists, can describe 
in precise terms in advance. Mm, I think events in uh, Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, etc. are quite a good events case that study, aren't they? in this building because you come up the escalator, not exactly the same way as you did before, or it stops. Events of variety of kinds. So, now the, so the next question is, so the world is a very complicated world. So one of the things we need to understand is perhaps some motivation and contextual issues that David is talking about. And I think that's something we could potentially learn something from, most certainly. But if you now want to talk about the theory, what is it that we're going to replace the finance and macro models with, that we know where to go. What we need to do, we need to now figure out whether there are any regularities in life that are contingent. You know we're not going to find universal laws that work all the time, that we already know. And if we didn't know it, if you read Karl Popper, Poverty of Hysteresis, we should have known it. So that's, uh, that's, that argument is rather well established. So, so this is clear where we go. We try to build models in which... There are regularities that are both qualitative and contingent. That means they come in, in play, at moments of time that no one can fully pre-specify. As David says, stories change in a way that we can't pre-specify. If we don't have those regularities, then we don't have economic theory, as we don't have any other theory. So that's what's in play. I happen to think... And actually, the work that I did with Michael Goldberg shows that there are some regularities. That we can talk about risk. I don't want to get into this. And we can talk about fluctuations in a way that is organized. What we need to do, we need to jettison the idea that we're going to be able to have universal models that work exactly, whether they're behavioral or orthodox or informational or whatever they are. We do that. And then if we can start doing research about what goes on in the world and discover qualitative regularities. And our work, I mean, this is the second book we're doing. This We did the technical book before with Princeton as well, shows that such regularities are there. In those areas in which we can discover them, perhaps with the help of very valuable research on interviews, on, I think this is all of great value. We have looked at the Bloomberg data, which is precisely of the interview kind, and discovered a variety of things. One of the things we discovered is that the be- straight behavioral explanation of the irrational exuberance is not quite in those stories. So if we look at that, there's a lot of fruitful work to be done, but we have to abandon a priori theorizing and stop believing that physics is going to give us, I happen to have a physics degree, that physics is going to have, give us the answers to economic questions, we have to start looking at the economies and at how people live and what they do and whether there are any irregularities, the way they deal with debt, with employment, and then and with financial merits, and then build them into models, see what they predict in a qualitative way, confronted with the data, and go on and abandon the pretense that we're going to discover universal laws. And the, that's the path forward. And only the future will show whether such a conception of economic science is possible. So economists need to be a bit more modest, perhaps. <laughs> a lot more modest. Yeah. A yeah. lot more modest. Hey, Philip, you recently reviewed the film Inside Job, didn't you? The Oscar-winning documentary. Did, did that convince you that, that economists ought to take part of the blame for what happened, do you think? Well, one of the um, main themes of that film was that the, a lot of economists in the United States were compromised by their relationship with the financial industry in that they were receiving rather large rewards for writing reports, some of them uh, very poorly researched, which um, basically um, gave the idea that 
everything was going very well with uh, derivatives markets, free markets, basically anything that the financial industry came up with was of a benefit to society. And as um, quite quite rightly mentioned, uh, Adair Turner, although he's been very silent for the last uh, year and a half, has, yeah. uh, did say <laughs> that a lot of this had no societal benefit yeah, whatsoever useless, and was yeah. socially useless. I mean, one of the things I wanted to throw back to you is, it, is, is it then Mr. Baruso, he's a very powerful figure. How do we explain his irrational decision to appoint a free market <laughs> economist then as his chief advisor? I, I can venture a, a guess on that one. What the political leader like this needs, it needs a, the political leader needs a certain degree of legitimacy in decisions concerning the flow of labor, financial regulation on a European-wide scale. That's why all of this stuff about that, for example, I thought the Inside Job was a superb film, but I think in a way, the idea that it's all financial corruption in an interesting way also suggests that there's something basically okay, because it, it suggests that if we could just get rid of it, it's going to be the fine. Bad, you take out all the bad of, people. All, and, all, of yeah. this, all we have to do is to get rid of the bad people yeah. and we're going to be perfect. So I think this is all, in fact, that also is a misconception. And what I think can explain his decision is the fact that, is the thing I suggested earlier, that this theory actually in some fundamental sense survived. In fact, this theory suggests that survived, that all the imperfections can be eliminated by state action and the market can be brought to perfection, that there's no difficulty in achieving a balance between the market and the state. And therefore, the person who believes in free markets is, in fact, a perfect advisor, because that person presumably can tell the political leader what will bring the economy to the free market ideal. The only little problem with that idea is that the free market ideal is a fiction it's a model of an economy that doesn't exist. But other than that, it's a perfectly <laughs> it's good a great model. Plan. It's, a, it's, a, it's a perfectly good model. But you can see that if somebody believes that that's a model of the real world, that somebody who is a real free market economist, who, under, who supposedly understands what it would take to bring the free market to existence, will be a perfect advisor. Because that person will say, if you do this, if you do that, if you do that. And that's a great line for a political leader. It has a great support among certain strata in Europe, of course. And so actually having an advisor like this, and also it's a, we live in an age of, I don't need to tell you, you're a journalist, we live in an age of soundbites. So that's a simple conception. The conception, let's say, Anatol Kalecki has in the Capitalist 1.0 is a complicated conception. It's a complicated, evolving balance between the state and the market. That's a hard thing to do in politics these days. Yeah. Yeah, that's why that free market idea is, is so appealing in some ways, because it's so simple, isn't it? But, David, I know you've done lots of, of interviews, both before and after the crisis, with, with sort of big figures in the city and, and, and so on. Are there things, obviously part of what you've been able to do is, is describe how these decisions are made, you know, and, and emotions and how important they are and so on. But is there a sort of prescription that comes out of what you've learned? You know, if I'm sitting in the Bank of England, for example, trying to decide how to make policy, you know, what does your approach tell me about how I should understand what's happening out there in, in the world, in the financial markets? Well, first of all, I, I do believe that understanding is extremely important, even if it doesn't immediately lead to action. I think, in fact, understanding is an insulation, a good understanding, against being taken over by, by the latest fashion. And I do think, therefore, that trying to make sure we've really understood 
what happened in 2008 is important and that the kind of thing, for example, today's Guardian starts off with a report about Mervyn King's uh, presentation at the House of Commons yesterday by saying he's reopening the discussion about blame. Now, I think that we need to move away from blame. Of course, there are people, there are crooks and so on in all this, and maybe uh, people could be blamed. But actually, huge things went wrong, and what's required is to understand it. Psychoanalysts distinguish between blame and guilt. Guilt is where you do actually have a feeling that what you did had some part in it. Blame is just find someone else to stick the label on. So we need to move, it's true, from blame, but to really looking at how we're responsible. And there, you know, I think in some ways we're all a bit responsible. That is, it was a, the, the period of moderation was a dream time. Very few people saw the problem coming. Uh, people thought they were much richer than in fact they were. People thought that banks were making profits, which in fact were a complete illusion. And to give up those feelings of success and of fantasy coming true and of everyone being rich. You know, you only have to look at, uh, in all, not perhaps in The Guardian, but in the Financial Times on Saturday, you know, how to spend it or whatever they call it. You know, all this incredibly luxurious item. And the general idea, which goes fundamental again to financial markets, that really anybody could participate. It's a bit like winning the pools or whatever. You, know, you too could get it. Now, so that when uh, free market ideas about financial markets are put forward or when restrictions are introduced you may well find people who a much bigger opposition to restriction and regulation than is logical because people may feel oh well they could be the person who made you know the hedge fund that's going to do this and that or could participate well and nobody wanted to be told that they couldn't borrow six times their income to buy a house exactly didn't they? That, that would have people would have seen exactly. that as, as an outrageous intervention in in markets the, Indians, you know. the indian reserve bank did that they did pretty well in the in the housing crisis yes that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, how much david you can learn you, a few lessons i think do you think though that fear is a factor because i mean something i've bored um heather with on many many occasions and to some extent the readers is um <laughs> is trying to document how the baby boomer generation have acquired all this wealth a lot of it fantasy wealth as you just described it and are now desperately trying to hang on to it and kind of doing anything they can so they give their pension funds instructions to go out and get as much money as they possibly can anywhere they can you know, don't worry about the ethics, just get me the money because I need that for my retirement. Now, we can characterise that as greed, you know, and trying to accumulate as much, but also it's driven to some extent by fear of a prolonged retirement, which is, you know, in poverty, poor health, you know, the no health service there to help them, you know, all these sorts of things. You have a whole generation with these latent fears that sort of almost seem to be driving them to the way they vote for politicians and all that sort of stuff. You know, does that come into it at all? But I think something like that is is the subject of another long conversation because I, I think don't think I'd put it exactly like that. <laughs> Talking of long conversations, yeah. <laughs> but but what what I think is is I talk about something called a divided state because basically you can say that we can easily get excited about investing and we can get anxious or as to use your word frightened. Uh, the problem is that you can disconnect the two. 
So what's happening when you start to believe you can't lose? And is that somewhere you've put out of your mind the anxiety that you can? And this, getting back to the question you asked me before, one of the fundamental issues for future regulation is how to create softer but more useful measures of what's going on in markets that look at the disconnection between, if you like, greed and fear or excitement and anxiety. And the job of the regulators is to inject anxiety. Now, at a time of recession, the job of the regulators is to inject enthusiasm. But as Keynes pointed out, it's actually much more difficult to inject enthusiasm than anxiety. Mm. Just oh, you, This is a terrific comment, I say, because actually the – and that goes back to Keynes, as a matter of fact, in an interesting way. And goes back to that question of risk. So the question is, how can the central bank inject fear – and how and what is the conceptual foundation for their ability to do that? So there's a complete complement between this theory and this way of talking about it. So I can tell you, Keynes actually has an answer to this question, interestingly enough. Because Keynes, which we formalized and tested, and it definitely is a better risk model than the standard use. So what's the what's Keynes' risk idea? Is that what happens is that the fear gets heightened when the asset price, say, departs from the conventional prevailing level. So you do know you're making money, but you're getting worried that there will be... So the markets do understand that they fluctuate. Economists don't. Economists think it's all random blips, but people who are in the markets cannot afford not to understand it. So the farther away you are from some range of conventional valuations, if Keynes would put it, we actually formalized this, as uh, strange as this may sound, and tested it, the more worried you are. So what David should see in studying this, this theory has a guide to the studies that that fear should heighten. That theory would suggest that he should be seeing, there's actually in the studies that could be even be a test of this fear, the key of the cases fear, that we should, we should be seeing more fear the further out we go. So now how does the central bank come in into this? One of the problems there was, of course, which I think David made it clear enough, I have not read his work, but I, I understand it, I think, from these remarks, is that the markets were not worried enough. That was the nature of the last comment. That's why I wanted to come in. That's a, exactly a perfect comment. So they weren't worried enough. So take this comment, and suppose this was backed by research. I imagine there's quite a bit of research on this already that David has done. And combine it with this theory, and that you have a composite picture. What should the central bank do? It should influence the risk perceptions dependent on the departure from the benchmark of market participants. There's two ways to do this. One is simply to keep talking about that this is far away from the benchmark. So Which that's Greenspan a seems to be doing when he was talking about irrational exuberance. Right, but, then, not but that's that he did not much irrational about exuberance was an idea that uh, there's an act of God. It's not an act of God. The central bank could actually see that the asset prices are away from, uh, the, you know, everyone. It, but this could be this could be like an inflation targeting. It's a very specific thing. And then there's a second thing. When it, this, this is still not enough, there should be measures, increased margin requirements, like what government already introduced for, in the Reserve Bank of India, and variety of measures like this. When you get far away, you can make it fearful and very costly 
to be a bull. And that would dampen the excessive instability. So there is a, and, and actually interesting enough to just close on this, the Keynes, when he talks about this risk model, specifically uses the word fear to describe what drives that. So there's clearly, that sort of, I think, is the way to go, both for policy, to answer your previous question, what this would lead to. Suppose David were to show that, in fact, when we far away from the benchmark, from the, the fear gets heightened. You combine it with this risk model and you have a policy prescription right there, which is backed both by the empirical by history of the field and by the theory. So there is actually something, there is something that we can do here. There's something we can go forward with, definitely. Well, now that we've, now that we've solved that, <laughs> I think we have to say that's all we have time for this week. Um, thanks very much to my guests, Roman Fridman, David Tuckett and Philip Inman. Roman's book, Beyond Mechanical Markets, is out now, published by Princeton University Press. Look out for David's book, Minding the Markets, an emotional finance view of financial instability, later this year. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.